service. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Give a man a horse he can ride. Give a man a boat he can sail. And his rank and wealth, his strength and health. On scene or shore shall fail. The story is about Robert Mitchum are insane. He escaped from a chain gang in Georgia where he was doing time for vagrancy. He walked away unscathed from a near-fatal plane crash. He avoided jail time by committing perjury. He punched a cop in the face on his front lawn. And he faced a year in county jail after LAPD detectives raided a reefer party. And for more than 50 years, Robert Mitchum made great films some of the greatest noir and crime films of all time. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Arthur Middleton performing Give a Man a Horse He Can Ride in 1921. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Anatoly Litvek's Sorry, Wrong Number. And why would I play you that specific slice of landline noir cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 1st, 1948. And that was the day Robert Mitchum was arrested for possession of marijuana. The first high-profile Hollywood arrest of its kind. One that would lead to accusations of a backstabbing setup. On this episode, Chain Gangs, a death-defying crash landing, reefer parties, and Robert Mitchum. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season three, Hollywoodland. Robert Mitchum appeared in more than 110 movies and television shows in a career that spanned more than half a century. He worked his entire life, right up until his death in 1997, at the age of 79. He personified the film noir archetype of the violent man wrapped in indifference to paraphrase Roger Ebert in movies like Out of the Past. In Night of the Hunter, he turned in one of cinema's most chilling performances as a murderous preacher, tattooing love and hate across his knuckles. 30 years before, Spike Lee tattooed those same words onto Radio Raheem. His acting style was deceptively simple, but the expressions that he summoned to his stoic face were sometimes so suggestive that the censors insisted they be cut, as was the case in the original Cape Fear. He worked hard, year after year, punched the clock like acting was just any other job, because it was. And he continued to flex those violent man wrapped in indifference muscles later in life in The Friends of Eddie Coyle, 
a movie which, in my opinion, is the greatest Boston crime movie of all time, all due respect to The Departed and Martin Scorsese. Yet despite all of this, Robert Mitchum never won an Academy Award for his work. And you know what? Robert Mitchum didn't give a fuck. Howard Hughes, the eccentric aviation tycoon turned Hollywood producer and later OCD poster child, once said, Bob, you're like a pay toilet. You don't give a shit for nothing. Mitchum's critics weren't so kind. They ridiculed him for, quote, sleepwalking through his roles, said he rarely reacted, let alone acted, that he shrugged or grimaced more than he spoke. And who the hell cared what anyone else thought? Robert Mitchum sure didn't. He just did what he wanted to do. Whether that was drinking tequila, cheating on his wife, picking the movie roles that appealed to him, or smoking reefer. Gage, to use the hep jazz man speak that Mitchum fluently spoke. A couple puffs of Gage and Mitchum's sleepy dog eyes went borderline catatonic. He couldn't be bothered. Nothing much really bothered Robert Mitchum, unless somebody was trying to bother him. He was a six foot one alpha misanthrope after all, and sometimes he could stand to just be left alone. Lila Leeds' two new boxer puppies were barking out back. She and her guests could hear them from inside a rented bungalow at 8443 Ridpath Drive in LA's Laurel Canyon. Real estate agent Robin Ford sat in the living room and wondered how much the bothersome dogs would drive down the neighborhood's property values. The dancer, Vicki Evans, seemed oblivious to the noise. She was Lila's roommate and was likely used to it by now. And if Robert Mitchum had been the worrying type, this would have been the time he should have begun to worry. He thought he'd spotted someone lurking in the bushes outside Lila's place when he arrived that evening. It being dark outside, he figured it was shadows playing tricks on him. But just to be safe, he asked Lila to dim the lights inside. He wasn't worrying, just taking precautions. Because despite what brand name was printed on the pack of cigarettes Mitchum brought to Lila's place, the pack wasn't filled with Philip Morris unfiltered. The regular cigarettes had been swapped out for reefer cigarettes or jazz cigarettes, and that's why Mitchum and Robin Ford had congregated at Lila and Vicky's place to begin with, to smoke some gauge and get real high. Which, in 1948, 12 years after the release of Reefer Madness, and 11 years after the United States government had effectively criminalized marijuana, that meant that they were all committing a crime that, if caught, could end their careers. Lila's acting career had barely begun. Mitchum's career was just taking off. The public had been systematically taught to fear the reefer. It made you crazy, gave you bloodlust, superhuman strength, turned you into a homicidal maniac, made you grow hair on your hands. Of course, Mitchum knew that that was all bunk and so did the cops. But the LAPD's crackdown on Hollywood's consumption of marijuana came from orders up on high. Narcotics Division was to rid the city of this particular sin by breaking into every speakeasy, every back room, every reefer party from WeHo to Wilshire. And sometimes, they didn't even have to break in. Sometimes, they were welcome to the party. Vicky opened the back door to see what the commotion was about. And the darkness outside bled in. So did the boxer's incessant yapping. She poked her head outside 
She jumped. Two LAPD dicks emerged from the shadows, the same shadows Robert Mitchum had suspected were moving when he first arrived. Mitchum had a joint burning between his fingers when the cops walked inside the house. He let the joint fall to the ground and tried to shoot the smoke with his hand, but he'd been made. Robin Ford gave his joint a dramatic flick and buried it under the couch. Both cops followed it with their eyes. Detective Sergeant Alva Barr picked up the Philip Morris pack that was laying on the coffee table. He took a look inside. He raised it to his nose and took a deep sniff. He nodded towards Mitchum. This yours? Mitchum resisted the urge to allow his hatred of authority to persuade him to deck the 5-0 square in the jaw. The narc did have a badge, so Mitchum just shook his head. They weren't his. Barr called bullshit. Don't give me any business and we'll get along fine. The other cop, Detective J.B. McKinnon, was clasping a pair of cuffs around the wrists of Robin Ford. Percy Pants was shaking like a goddamn leaf, and Mitchum sighed. He stuck his hands up in the air. Fuck it. Who cared? It's just a couple of joints. Would it end his acting career? It might. Future Mitchum would figure that shit out, though. Barr turned his attention to Lila. He pointed at the pockets of her bathrobe. What do you got in there? He asked. She pulled out some crumpled up newspaper. Barr unwrapped it. Three more marijuana cigarettes, eight Benzedrine tabs. Barr and McKinnon had what they needed to place all four under arrest. They also had what they wanted, which was another Hollywood doper caught red-handed and jacked on the devil's weed. And they didn't care about Robin Ford or Lila or her roommate. They wanted Robert Mitchum. He was the one box office draw in the room. Busting someone of Mitchum's caliber would get some attaboys from the brass as well as some solid coverage in the papers. As the cops dragged the quartet downtown, Mitchum got to thinking, how did the cops know that he was going to be at Lila's that night? Something stunk, and it wasn't the Oda Sweetleaf clinging to his suit jacket. He was about to take a fall for a cigarette pack full of reefer, and he'd be damned if it wasn't a setup. The station was crawling with photographers and reporters when they arrived. The walk from the police cruiser to the front door of the station was cluttered with flashbulbs and beat writers jockeying for attention. Mitchum squinted his graveyard shift eyes and dodged questions. Inside the station, the cops walked him through the booking process. Name, Robert Charles Derman Mitchum. Age, 31. Occupation. Mitchum paused to let a stone smile creep across his face and then he gave his answer former actor. The judge wanted to pin the shoe store robbery on him, but Robert Mitchum maintained his innocence. It was simply impossible. He had been sitting in a Savannah jail cell when the robbery happened. And why was he in custody in the first place? Mopery with the intent to gawk. Fuck if he knew. They didn't like Yankees in the Deep South. He did know that. Especially ones who the law deemed a quote-unquote dangerous or suspicious character with no visible means of support. In other words, a bum. It was 1932, and that's essentially what Robert Mitchum was. A 14-year-old drifter, a hobo in training. He hopped a freight train back home in New York, headed south in search of adventure. The American expanse was calling. It wasn't even like he ran away either. His mother packed his suitcase, made him a sandwich, and sent him out the door. The country was in the throes of the Great Depression, and Mitchum was one of an estimated quarter of a million kids, the fabled wild boys of the road, who 
turned on by the thrill of the drift and the need for steady work, left home looking for something else, destination anywhere that wasn't here. He listened to old timers tell tall tales on the rails, drank moonshine, learned how to identify marijuana growing on the side of the road, pick it and roll it up in newspaper to smoke. He caught and cooked squirrels, learned to defend himself, picked up odd jobs when they came, washed dishes, picked fruit, dug ditches. But in Savannah, Georgia, Mitchum's wanderlust was stopped dead in its tracks, busted for vagrancy. And now, this judge wanted to double or triple the sentence with this insane shoe store robbery frame job. Mitchum laughed it off. How could he have been in jail and at the shoe store at the same time? The courtroom thought Mitchum was a riot. They, in turn, laughed at his catty response, and the judge did not. He sentenced Mitchum to seven days with Chatham County Camp Number 1, Pipe Maker Swamp, Chain Gang. It was a work detail full of tuberculosis and hepatitis, of swamp fever and gangrene. Robert Mitchum would later say that his escape from the chain gang was pedestrian, that he simply stopped showing up one day and no one missed him. In actuality, he made a break for it at a moment when his chains were unfastened, while the crew worked the side of the road. The captain in charge of work detail was looking one way, and Mitchum bolted the other way. As he disappeared into the woods, he heard the captain's rifle sound out. Something hot and fast blew past him. It was a 50-50 chance the bullet would hit him, or it wouldn't. And frankly, Robert Mitchum didn't give a damn either way. cursing loudly so that he'd be heard over the rumbling engine. The plane had just touched down on the landing strip, but the brakes, they weren't working. Not at all. And the tiny four-seater barreled forward. The pilot watched as the tree line just beyond the end of the runway approached them with furious speed. Fuck! Robert Mitchum sat nervously in the co-pilot's seat. He didn't know shit about planes. He was merely a passenger en route from Los Angeles to Bridgeport, California, some 350 miles north in the Sierra Mountains. He braced for impact. When the pilot pushed the throttle forward, Mitchum didn't know what the hell good that did. It did take them off the crash course with the trees, but now it put them square on track to slam through a fence, which they did, and jump a ditch, which they also did. Next was an outhouse, which the small aircraft turned into kindling before finally coming to a stop. Mitchum looked behind him. The studio accountant and writer's assistant sitting in the back seat were both out cold. It was 1946, and Robert Mitchum was headed to Bridgeport to begin shooting Out of the Past, the hard-boiled noir that would go on to become one of his signature roles. Not to mention, one of the most celebrated films from the noir genre's classic era. The movie was directed by French filmmaker Jacques Tournier, who had graduated from B Pictures to the A-list with low-budget horror movies like Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. Mitchum's male co-star was Kirk Douglas, in only his second role to date. Douglas was still burned by the fact that Mitchum had beat him for the lead role in a movie called Pursued, so he tried to out-Mitchum Mitchum in his performance, but 
No one could out Mitchum Mitchum. He was Mitchum. He underacted like no one else. He's a master of stillness, director David Lean once said. Others act, Mitchum is. Indeed, Mitchum coolly and calmly was, no matter what he was doing, even when he was walking away from a plane wreck in Bridgeport, California. The rest of the cast and crew were having lunch when Mitchum appeared, having thumbed a ride into town from where the plane had come to rest just beyond the busted up outhouse. Word had already traveled, calls had been made to the hospital, and they feared Mitchum was dead. Robert Mitchum, though, he couldn't be bothered, shook it off. He was a little banged up, sure, but no worse for wear. He was ready to get to work. He walked up to the crew, smiled, and asked, anybody here got a gauge? The phone rang out and broke the silence at Howard Hughes' house. It didn't wake up the RKO Pictures president, even though it was in the middle of the night. Insomnia kept the billionaire up most nights. Other nights, he was kept up from the PTSD related to his near-fatal plane crash two years earlier in 1946. A different near-fatal plane crash than Mitchum's, by the way. Hughes picked up the receiver. The voice on the other end of the line broke the news. Robert Mitchum, one of RKO's prized contract players, had been swept up in a drug bust in Laurel Canyon, some reefer party at Lila Lee's place. Mitchum was sitting in a holding cell. The cops wanted to make an example out of him, and it wasn't looking good. Hughes couldn't decide if he had a masculine crush on Robert Mitchum or if he was just jealous. Mitchum was barrel-chested, bourbon-voiced, confident, where Hughes was introverted and calculated. Mitchum could get a girl just by shooting her one of his droopy-eyed glances, while Hughes could spend thousands of dollars on a dame only to get nowhere. Hughes watched Mitchum's movies over and over again in his private screening room. Out of the Past was a particular favorite. Howard Hughes liked to daydream that he was Robert Mitchum. Handsome, heroic, unfuckwithable, like he didn't give a shit about anything. In reality, Howard Hughes gave too much of a shit about everything. He worried way too much about disease, about communists, about the fact that he was going deaf about the fact that he didn't rate, didn't measure up, and now he had to worry about one of his studio's best actors doing serious time for a serious federal crime. It was a serious fucking problem. However, even serious problems had solutions. Howard Hughes just needed someone to fix it. Who do we have to pay to get this thing killed? Hughes asked the voice on the other end of the line. And that's when the news went from bad to worse. It was too late to call in a fixer and kill the story before it hit the papers. And they were beyond simply paying someone off or scaring someone into not running with the breaking news. The photographers already had their pictures, the reporters already had filed their stories, and as soon as the sun rose in Hollywood, the morning editions would lead with unflattering shots of Mitchum being led into the police station, next to headlines that read, Bob Mitchum, three others jailed after dope raid, and a man in the grip of demon drugs. Hughes opted to go with in-house counsel, RKO's lawyer, Jerry Giesler, the one and the same who had gotten Charlie Chaplin acquitted of violating the Mann Act and mobster Bugsy Siegel acquitted of murder. Giesler argued that Mitchum's indictment alone was extremely confusing. Mitchum and the others were being charged with, quote, possession and conspiracy to possess flowering tops and leaves of India hemp. Hold up, Giesler said. 
The way the thing was written was far from the simple language that indictments were supposed to be written in. And second of all, the last he knew, hemp was used to make rope. And that remark got a few people laughing in the courtroom. But just like at Mitchum's vagrancy trial in Savannah, the judge was not among the amused. Neither was the judge amused with all the fan mail that Mitchum continued to receive while he awaited trial. He was brought into the courthouse by the armful. And the public was rooting for Mitchum, demon drugs and all. Mitchum and Lila Leeds didn't need to give the judge another reason to not be happy, because their fate rested squarely in the judge's hands. In order to have the charge of possession dropped, they had both agreed to waive a jury trial and have their charge of conspiracy to possess decided solely by the testimony of the arresting officers. Robin Ford and Vicki Evans, on the other hand, demanded a jury trial, and they were both acquitted. Robert Mitchum and Lila Leeds were not so lucky. On Wednesday, February 9th, 1949, the judge returned his verdict. He concluded that Mitchum was, quote, psychologically ill-equipped for his sudden rise to fame, unquote. And that maybe, just maybe, it was time for Robert Mitchum to care about something for once, like the kind of example he was setting for America's impressionable youth, or the fact that he was walking around committing crimes on a regular basis with no consequence. Until now, the buck stopped here. Robert Mitchum would have plenty of time to start to give a fuck while he was serving a year in jail. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Robert Mitchum put on the chaps, the bandana and the boots, and then looked at himself in the mirror. The reality of the situation began to sink in. He was gonna be an actor. He was about to shoot a scene for his very first picture, a heavy and a hop-along Cassidy flick, no less. And here he was, getting his makeup done and beginning to look like a real cowboy. He just needed one more thing, a hat. But the cowboy hat was sticky. Mitchum couldn't figure out exactly what was on it. So he asked the prop guy standing next to him, what gives with the sticky hat? And the prop guy took a look. Shit, he said, it's still got blood on it. As he scraped the blood off the hat with a pen knife, the prop guy explained that the actor that Mitchum was replacing in the movie had been pulled off a wagon during the filming of a stunt, and the reins were wrapped around his hands. And the horses just kept yanking on the reins this way and that, which meant the wagon rolled over the guy again and again, and he bled like a son of a bitch from his head, mostly. And that's why there was blood on the hat. It was a dead man's hat. Like all of Robert Mitchum's stories, the one about getting his big break by replacing a deceased actor was dramatic as hell and probably only partially true. What was true was that Mitchum was friendly with William Boyd, the actor who played Hopalong Cassidy, and that friendship landed Mitchum the first opportunity to make a career in Hollywood. And that break came years after Mitchum rode the rails out to California following his escape from the chain gang in Savannah. Out west, he worked more odd jobs, and at the age of 20, married Dorothy Spence, who, through sickness and health and more than a few instances of his infidelity with famous co-stars like Shirley MacLaine, would remain Mitchum's wife until death did them part. When Mitchum got the call to do the Hopalong Cassidy movie, he and Dorothy had two kids and were dead broke, for richer or poorer indeed, 
they needed the bread. The opportunity delivered and then some. Mitchum made seven Hopalong movies in total before landing a contract with RKO. And just a few years later, in 1945, he landed his first and only Academy Award nomination for his supporting role in the story of G.I. Joe, which, despite its title, was actually a potent anti-war movie made at a time when most war movies were glorified recruitment reels. The toy and cartoon of the same name wouldn't come until decades later. At 27 years old, Robert Mitchum was starting to get noticed in Hollywood, but not always for the right reasons. One evening, as Mitchum sat on the front steps of his house, wishing that the cigarette he was smoking was a little wackier and a little less tobaccier, a man came out of the shadows. First, he was walking up the block, and then he was jogging, and then he was sprinting, sprinting right up the walkway to Mitchum's place. The guy turned on a flashlight and shone it directly at Mitchum's mug. Mitchum was blindsided. He stood up and stumbled back as the man leapt towards him, and then... Mitchum did what came naturally. He cocked back his arm and punched the bastard straight in the nose. How was Robert Mitchum supposed to know the guy was a cop? The motherfucker never said that he was, and furthermore, that goddamn flashlight was busy burning a hole straight through his sleepy peepers. The guy could have been a homicidal maniac for all Mitchum knew. Suddenly, there was another cop on Robert Mitchum's lawn. Turns out they were there to investigate a disturbance but they had the wrong address. Didn't matter now. Robert Mitchum had hit the wrong guy. The cop he had punched dealt a retaliatory blow, first with his fist and next with the butt of his gun. And the other cop pulled out his billy club and went to town, broke two of Mitchum's ribs with one blow. The judge told Mitchum he was going to jail for 180 days for clocking a police officer on duty. 180 days, fuck, that was half a year a lifetime in Hollywood, especially with a career that was just taking off. He'd never recover. And he had Dorothy and two young kids at home to worry about. He couldn't do time. Not now. This wasn't Savannah, and he wasn't a kid. He had to think on his feet, something, before the gavel came down and the sentence was final. I'm I'm sorry, Judge, Mitchum said. I just can't do that. Why not, the judge asked. Because, well, Your Honor, because I'm joining the Army. Either the judge's heart grew three sizes that day with patriotic pride, or he called Mitchum's bluff. Instead of being led off to a jail cell, Robert Mitchum was led to the draft board to enlist by the same two cops who had arrested him in the first place. Mitchum avoided jail time that day, but with his reefer bust a few years later, he wasn't so lucky. He was recast in a new role, not in a major Hollywood movie, but as a real-life inmate of the L.A. County Jail, prisoner number 91234. He hung his head and worked the mop on the dirty floor. It didn't even make a difference. It just made the dirt wet and pushed it around. Still, he went through the motions, did as he was instructed. Morning had broken, and thus the warden was wasting no time breaking in the man who was now his most famous inmate. February 1949. Robert Mitchum was only a few days into his jail term for the reefer bust. He didn't think he could make it for 365 days, and thankfully, he wouldn't have to. The judge wound up suspending Mitchum and Lila Lee's original sentence, instead placing them both on probation for two years along with a 60-day jail term. 
60 days was still a load of horseshit, but it was better than a goddamn year. Hey, Mitchum, how'd you sleep last night? Mitchum lifted his head to see the guy who had asked the question, standing there, holding a pencil and a small pad of paper in his hand. Another guy next to him was holding a camera, and the flashbulb went off. Who the fuck let these guys in here, Mitchum thought to himself. A reporter and a photographer inside the county jail? Somebody must have made that happen. A handshake, a greased palm, and understanding. Mitchum wasn't stupid. He knew it was more than just a couple of guys sniffing around for tabloid fodder. It was likely worse. There were another couple pairs of eyes watching Mitchum's every move, everything he did, everything he said. They wanted to catch him when he slipped, bloat the hand slap of a sentence he'd received, and then boom, make him do two big ones up in Quentin. These guys were sent there by someone. Maybe LAPD, maybe the sheriff's department. Geisler was putting his money on Paul Behrman, Mitchum's former manager. Mitchum had recently fired Behrman after accusing him of stealing all but $58 from his bank account. Behrman maintained his innocence. Perhaps now he was settling the score. And that wasn't all with Behrman. The snake had also been Lila Leeds' manager at one point. Geisler was sure that was no coincidence. Mitchum thought back to that night in Laurel Canyon, how Vicki Evans, the roommate, hadn't touched the stuff, but she had opened the door to let the narcs in. Mitchum stuffed the mop back in the bucket of suds. He told the guy with the camera to not get any photos of him with the cell bars in the background, didn't want his kids to see it in the paper and get upset. And then he told the guys to scram. He wanted to be left alone. And he needed to get back to work and didn't feel much like talking anyway. He was too busy thinking about what he was going to do to that weasel ex-manager when he got back out on the outside. Howard Hughes used his connection with the sheriff to get them a private room. No guards, no cameras, just the movie tycoon in his incarcerated star. Robert Mitchum sat across the table from Hughes in county-issued farm overalls. Hughes kept a sanitary distance. He felt relatively safe in the privacy of the office, unlike outside on the farm where the prisoners milled about carrying God knows what diseases. Hughes shuddered to think. People just gave him the goddamn heebie-jeebies. Mitchum had done a week total at L.A. County Jail before Jerry Geisler was able to finagle a transfer to Castaic, an hour north on the sheriff's wayside honor farm, where he was now serving out the remainder of his sentence. Mitchum appreciated the break that Hughes' visit allowed. Nine hours a day making cement blocks did a fucking number on your back. Hughes was there on a goodwill mission, keeping his alter ego happy despite current circumstances and make it known that RKO had his back. In fact, Hughes came bearing good news. Mitchum's stock was continuing to go up, reefer madness and all. His latest pictures, Blood on the Moon and Rachel and the Stranger, were doing bang-up business at the box office. Rachel and the Stranger, in particular, was shaping up to be RKO's biggest movie of the year, thanks to Mitchum's devil-may-care profile. And that was all well and good, but Robert Mitchum needed more than good news. He needed $50,000 to pay his legal fees, and then some more dough to buy a nice house for his family. 
Hughes said he'd front Mitchum the money, no problem. Money was one thing that was never a problem for a guy like Howard Hughes. And because he liked Mitchum so damn much, Hughes would only charge Mitchum 5% interest on the loan. Hughes left Mitchum at Wayside Honor Firm with one final gift, a brown paper bag full of vitamins. Those were on the house. After 60 days in county lockup, freedom tasted pretty damn good, but the tequila tasted even better. Robert Mitchum was Dos Vasos deep when he visualized it, the revenge. First, he was gonna go to the hardware store. He was gonna buy three things, a corn cob, a can of gasoline, and a whip. Next, he was gonna head over to that snake ex-manager of his, Paul Berman's place, unannounced, use the element of surprise to his benefit. Then, he would douse the corn cob in gasoline, shove the goddamn thing up the backstabbing ex-manager's asshole, and light it on fire. As that little prick ran the length of Sunset Boulevard in the dead of night, howling in pain while his dirty, rotten, fink ass went up in flames, Mitchum would chase him with the whip and beat him bloody raw with it. Solid fucking plan, and no shit, that really was Robert Mitchum's plan. At least it was until the tequila buzz wore off. In the morning, Robert Mitchum's cooler head prevailed. Probably a good idea not to wind back up in the clink, having just been released and all. Probably an even worse idea to exact psychotic revenge while serving his two-year probation. And the only thing he should be punching was the clock. He needed to get back to work and put some food on the table. So instead, Mitchum told the cops about how Berman had made his hard-earned money disappear when he was in the actor's employ. Turns out the guy was already up for grand theft for ripping off another poor bastard. Lila Leeds, the actress who rented the house where the marijuana bust happened and who also once employed Behrman as her manager, offered testimony on Behrman's character as well. And it wasn't good, because the guy was no good, and the state sent Behrman to San Quentin to atone for his sins. Robert Mitchum was satisfied. He didn't need proof of Paul Behrman's involvement in his getting pinched. If the guy did it, well, he was sitting in a jail cell now. Good enough. Lila Leeds, however, she kept squawking that the bust was a frame job, a setup, and the district attorney was actually listening. Lila suggested that her roommate, Vicki Evans, she may have been involved. She was the only one who didn't smoke reefer that night of the bust. She had conveniently opened the door and let the LAPD waltz right in. But why did she do it? For whom? The DA looked Lila in the eyes. Are you saying your roommate double-crossed you? Lila's attorney leaned over and whispered two words in her ear. No comment. Two years passed. Robert Mitchum's probationary period came to an end. He was back to working regularly, and the roles poured in. He minded his own damn business. Years later, once he was free from his RKO contract, he minded his business more than most. He founded his own production company, ditched his agent, and took only the roles that he wanted. Some of the roles would be the greatest of his long and storied career. However, the rumors of a frame-up surrounding his 1948 arrest never really went away. And it wasn't just the names of ex-managers and struggling dancers that were bandied about. The LAPD was implicated more than a few times. Specifically, 
their zealous need to get good publicity out of their war on drugs in Hollywood, no matter the cost. So, in the interests of all parties involved, the arrest was quietly expunged from Mitchum's permanent record, like it never happened. But there were no front page articles to spread the good news. You only got space on the front page when you were busted, not when you were vindicated. No matter, frame job or no, Robert Mitchum was still caught smoking gauge, and he'd keep on smoking gauge. He didn't hide that fact. He didn't give a fuck. And if you truly don't give a fuck, then you ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double 